Hello, you're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. Paul describing Jesus as the ultimate man. Whenever we talk about what is a man, we have one model of a man, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the man, Christ Jesus. Note the next expression, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Manhood involves sacrificial serving of others. What does it mean to be a man? Is it about beards and strong muscles or cutting edge suits and big incomes? Is one more of a man than the other? I guess it depends on where you take your role model from, doesn't it? Tonight, Dr. Corbett busts open some serious misconceptions about manhood when he looks at the Bible for the position description of a real bloke. Let's join Dr. Corbett now and see if we can't find the qualities of a true man. One of the reasons why I want to talk about this, apart from coinciding with Father's Day, is there's, um, and I'm thinking probably a bit later in the year, I'm probably going to do a little series on topics that pastors don't like to preach on. I don't know if you've ever heard a series by that title, but uh, there are things that pastors don't like to talk about. And I found uh, this past week that one of those topics has to do with sexuality. It, it can be difficult, I think, for some pastors to talk about. Some pastors just straight up do not talk about it. And I, I then uh, don't wonder why so many young people are confused when it comes to sexual issues, because the pastors that should be pastoring through the Word of God to help people to understand these things actually won't talk about it. And I think that's a problem. One of the problems that we have, uh, while we have a, a theology that sees that God gifts men and women with gifts, and presumably, if God gifts men and women with gifts, presumably, he wants them to use those gifts. Does that make sense? What is God's design for a man and God's design for a woman? And particularly, how does that relate to how we understand how we do ministry in the church? Would you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16? It's the last chapter of Paul's epistle, first, what we call his first epistle, to the Corinthians. So in looking at the qualities of a true man, and I'm using that word true in the sense of this is what God teaches, this is what God says. It's a rather bold claim, but I hope I can substantiate this claim tonight. And by doing that, we're, we can't help but note what God's design for a true woman is. So this, this is, I, I guess, I could call this a theology of manhood or a theology of man, but sometimes we use that word man in the sense of uh, mankind. So I want to be very clear that I'm, I'm actually talking about gender distinction. We live in a culture right now where the word equality is used to describe male and female. And we, whenever we hear of anything that sounds remotely contrary to that, it sounds like we're particularly, as this pastor indicated, or seemed to indicate, whether he was doing it deliberately or not, that man, men had a, a place of superiority over a woman. That's, that's whether he intended to say that or not, that's, that's how it's conveyed. I want you to have a look at chapter 16, chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. We're going to have a look at this. We're going to anchor 
this discussion in what are the qualities of a true man in, in these two verses. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. And by the way, that is a compound Greek word. Uh, and Paul was fond of doing this. He was fond of putting words together and making them into one word. I can assure you that what we have there, act like men, three words in English, is, is one Greek word. Um, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to make the point that much of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians actually has to do with gender distinction and sexuality. It seems that Paul was not afraid to talk about these issues. So, to do that, I want to consider, as I wrote recently, one of my, I don't know if I'd call him my hero, but I would certainly say he's one of the men that I admire most. His name is, and partly because he's got the coolest name, his name is, well, Count is not his name, but his, his, his title is Count, and he's, he's known as Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. You've got to admit, that is a cool name. I mean, if, you, if you're going to name your child, start with Count. That's awesome. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He was, he was born in Dresden, in Germany. And we're, we're talking uh, around the uh, late 1600s, er, well, early 1700s. And he, from a very young age, he was quite a devout young man. Very sincere faith. Uh, he was obviously, if, you, if you've got the title count, you're born into aristocracy, so he's born into wealth. And he really sincerely wanted to follow Christ. He, uh, he finished his law degree and was, and was headed into the diplomatic corps for um, his country. And before he did that, it was customary for a young man who just finished his degree to go on a jaunt. And, and the jaunt, he chose to go to different parts of Europe, which included Holland and France and, and, and places, you know, in that, that region of Europe. He, he went to a museum in France and he saw a painting by Domenico Fetti uh, called, and this is in Latin, Echo or Ecce Homo, which is Latin for Behold the man, and it's based on a verse in the Gospel of John where Pilate introduces Jesus to the crowd, maybe on the presumption that the crowd are going to say, what were we thinking, release him, because he's done nothing wrong. And Pilate actually says, I find no guilt in him. And he presents Christ and he says, behold the man. Dominic, Domenico Fetti painted a number of paintings around this theme. So we're not exactly sure what it was that Nicholas uh, Ludwig von Zinzendorf saw. We're not sh exactly sure, but we've, we've got a rough idea. What gripped him was that this artist 
are based on the verse in John 19, verse 5, had these words also in Latin, and Latin, of course, was sort of the lingua franca of Europe. In other words, it was the language that all the educated people uh, were familiar with. I won't bore you with the, what the Latin says. I'll translate it straight into English. In the bottom of the painting, where it's a picture of Christ with a crown of thorns, as he's presented to the people by Pilate, there, the artist put this, this have I suffered for you. Now what will you do for me? Behold the man, this I suffered for you. Now what will you do for me? This gripped Nicholas von Zinzendorf. It struck him to the core of his being. That, that thought had never occurred to him. I, I guess to put it in modern language, he was a fan of Jesus, but not a follower. And that painting by Domenico Fetti, an artist, and this is going to be an important part of my, my point here, gripped him to the core of his being. All right. So, Zinzendorf in that moment dedicated himself with this, with this mission. Christ, use me. Have your way with me. And he became, in his words, a follower of Christ. Now, we read Paul describing Jesus as the ultimate man. So, whenever we talk about what is a man, according to the Bible? We have one model of a man, and that is Jesus Christ. We find in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, in that, what we might say, infamous second chapter of 1 Timothy, but here it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. And that word men, in that sense, obviously, is mankind, male and female. The man, Christ Jesus. Now note this next expression. He's the man, Christ Jesus. Note the next expression. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now come back to that painting. I gave myself for you. What will you do for me? There's a, there's a sense in which manhood involves sacrificial serving of others. If Christ is our model man, he's the model example of this. So with that in mind, Zinzendorf made his way back to uh, Germany and he took up his estate near Munich. And he was living a very comfortable, very luxurious life. Around this time in Europe, there were Christians who took objection to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It's hard for us to understand the, the way U European religion, European Christianity worked at that time. The Roman Catholic Church was not just the church you went to on a Sunday. It was the, the ruling body, essentially. It could depose kings. So it had this incredible judicial power. It could, it could exercise court power. It, 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 
it controlled just about every aspect of life. And there were the, the Christians who accepted what Martin Luther taught, which was, you're not saved because a priest has absolved you of your sins. You are saved because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and trust him as your saviour. Now that has huge ramifications, of course, in uh, Christendom Europe. Christendom, the idea that the church ruled both government and spiritual matters. And so there was a, a group of Czech, as in Czech, the old Czechoslovakia, Czech Christians, known as the Moravians, who were told you either submit to the Roman Catholic Church or you will be put to death. So you see the climate. So, that, so hundreds and hundreds of these Moravians, Czechoslovakians or Czech people, fled their land and, and sought refuge over the border in Germany. And they, were, they came from various factions of Protestantism. In fact, the factions became so heated over what they were now enjoying, which was the ability to think for themselves rather than just accept what a priest said, that they had many, many arguments. And like all good Protestants, these caused divisions and hatred. Please hear the, the sadness in my voice about that. And what happened was that their infighting, they came over and their infighting became a, 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 something that was, that was going to destroy them. And so the pastor, the Lutheran pastor in, in near uh, Munich, went to the, the lord of the land, the count, which was young Zinzendorf, and said, I cannot do anything about this. The, the infighting is so horrendous. Um, I, I'm, I'm afraid that there won't be a church that I pastor because of the divisions. Can you help? And young Zinzendorf went down there and had a call for a meeting of the senior leaders of, of the Moravians. And he said, how about we do this? You're arguing over points of doctrine in the Bible about what constitutes the church. How about we study the Bible together, go through every New Testament passage on the church and see what it says about how Christians should treat each other, particularly people who don't agree with each other. And they said, okay, let's do it. And as they went through the scripture, their eyes were open to how Christians should treat each other even when they disagree. Now, I've said it many times. The hallmark of Christian maturity, and dare I say maturity, is not the extent to which we agree. It's how we disagree. How we disagree. And so what they discovered was that the Bible commands for believers to treat each other as, note these words, powerful words, brothers and sisters. It's an amazing thing that the word friend hardly occurs in the Bible. The Bible does not speak of you having a friend. The Bible makes reference to you having a brother or a sister. Even in the Old Testament, the famous, the most famous friendship, if I was to ask you if you know your Old Testament, the most famous friendship between two men in the Old Testament, someone want to hazard? 
Jonathan and David. And nowhere in the relationship in the Old Testament where it's described are they called friends. They're called brothers. The result of Zinzendorf doing this Bible study with the Moravians, that they all agreed they needed to form a covenant of brotherhood. A covenant of brotherhood. This became a moment, a moment, a significant moment, with no exaggeration, in world history. This small group, several hundred Moravians, gathering under the leadership of Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, agreeing, we now see it in Scripture. They formed a covenant of brotherhood. When they met together, they saw it as a celebration of their familyness, their brother and sister. I think there's something about that. They formed a covenant that they would help each other, that they would serve each other, that they would overlook their differences and be polite to one another. This is the result. From their own initiative, they said, we should meet regularly to pray. They began to pray. Now, I haven't got the date right here, but I think it was, I think it was April 1714, I think. It was in that ballpark. When they met together to pray and celebrate communion, which is a family meal. And as they met for communion, they were praying, they were worshipping and praying, and most of the scripture teaching at that point was reinforcing their brotherhood, which means sisters and brothers. And what happened was when they were praying, it's called, by the way, this is a clue as to what happened, it's called the Moravian Pentecost. As they prayed, the doors burst open, a wind swept through their gathering, and people began to pray in tongues. And that was the day the world changed. Because from that day, being filled with the, with the Holy Spirit, they began to feel a burden for their fellow countrymen back in Moravia, the land of Czech, the Czech Republic today. Risking their own lives, they said, we must go back and share the gospel with them. Then as they continued to pray in the months to come, they're regularly praying. They began to pray for the settlement of the Americas. America was being settled. And they decided they would go to the new colonies of America. Then they heard that there were Africans being kidnapped against their will, taken into slavery and going to the Caribbean, going to England, going to the Americas. And some of them said, we need to reach them as well. And the only way they could do it was to sell themselves into slavery to do it. On one occasion, when a young Englishman, and you would know who this is, Judith, a young English minister, a very young English minister, was on his way from England to America to take up a position, a storm hit the ship. And the captain and the crew feared for their lives. And a young John Wesley began to panic that his life would be over before he even got to where he was going to be, become a, the minister there. And as he was there terrified for his life, he heard singing 
coming from the deck of the ship in the midst of the storm. He mustered up enough courage to look through the, the, the hole to see on the deck and he saw a group of Moravians travelling on the ship, seated on the deck of the ship in the midst of the storm, worshipping God. He went down to his cabin, he wrote in his journal, I've come to America to save Indians, but oh my Lord, who will save me? He saw Christianity in a way he'd never seen it before and it jolted him. And by his own admission, at this point in his faith walk, he was not a Christian. When he came back to England, he sought out Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And there's a famous painting of the two men meeting in England, walking as Ludwig von Zinzendorf shared with him some of the things from scripture that Wesley had never seen. And the rest is history, as they say. In fact, Alan shared a snippet of Wesleyan history with us uh, last week, was it? Yeah, last week. That was, and that was astounding. This was as a result of Zinzendorf laying down his life to be a man of God. And can I point out, I was about 16 years of age, hungry for God. At the age of 15, my life had changed. At the age of 16, I was baptised with the Holy Spirit and my world was transformed. And I was hungry for God's word. And back in those days, we didn't have, this may shock you who are under 30, there was no such thing as a smartphone or even an MP3. Nope. They were called, you're going to have to look this up on maybe Wikipedia or Google, they were called cassette tapes. And I devoured them. I got, and there was a thing called the Christian Cassette Lending Library. It was in New South Wales. You would send off, you'd join for $20 or whatever it was, you'd send off and order 10 cassettes. They'd send you the 10 cassettes, you'd listen to them, put them back in the box, send them back and they'd send you another 10. And I, de I devoured them. And one of the people that I devoured a lot of was Winky Prattney. And he said something when I was 16 that changed my life. He said the, the highest honour any man can receive is to be called a man of God. He said, when I die, put that on my tombstone because it's the highest honour any man could ever be awarded. A man of God. So we have... Here in Corinthians, Paul talking to the uh, highly sexualized people, the Corinthians, about issues of gender, sexuality. And he's, he's talked about this earlier on and, and, and in, he talks about marriage. And, and in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It's normal, it's usual, it's normal for a man or a woman to marry. That's normal. There's obviously circumstances that don't afford that opportunity to everyone. Of my four children, only one is married, so I understand that. And Paul has made this point to say, Essentially, marriage is normal. That's usual. That God has designed for men and women to enter into a lifelong relationship in what is called marriage. So there's, there's a statement about gender and a statement about sexuality. 
very clearly. You can read 1 Corinthians 7 and you'll see that statement's really, really clear. He goes on and he discusses some more of these issues and in chapter 11 he has this incredibly, to our ears, strange discussion about why women should wear headscarves. And if you've ever gone around our city, you'll notice that there is one particular group of Christians who do that very literally. In fact, if they can't do that because it looks a little bit weird, they will wear something as close to a headscarf as they can get. It might be a big flower, like artificial flower or something, and they consider that's covering their head so that it ticks some of these boxes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this in verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So in this instance, Paul is saying something about headship. If you're into Greek, the word is kephaleia. kephaleia. Um, and, and, and it speaks of headship. But headship also means something else in the Bible. It doesn't just mean what you put on your head. It actually means something that pertains to order and responsibility. So it says there that Christ is the head of man. It's saying the man is ultimately accountable to Christ. The woman is under the man's headship. The man is responsible for the woman. And here's what we don't do well in our modern culture. We don't understand that you can have order without hierarchy. Do you understand? Hierarchy means superior, inferior. But in the Bible, order, in other words, those who bear responsibility, is not a matter of up here, you down there. It's a matter of this is my role. Think of it more in a circle. That parents are the heads of their children. Parents are responsible for their children. And a, and a husband is responsible for his wife. So Paul says in verses 9 and 10, Neither was a man created for woman, but a woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Can I point out there's a principle of interpreting scripture which says when something is a universal principle, it is repeated more than once. And this is the only place in the New Testament where it says that. So that should be a clue that there was something going on in Corinth where this meant something in particular. And some scholars believe the head covering is not so much this as it is the veil across the face which spoke of a woman either being chaste, as in married, or if she didn't wear that veil, it was a symbol that she was a prostitute. And now that might change the way we review, we see right, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But Paul refers to something. Man was created first, then the woman. What he's referring to is the original creation of man and woman. That man and woman, from the outset, were created distinct. They were created different. Now, hear this. You can be equal, but different at the same time. A cup of flour can be equal to a cup of sugar in volume. Maybe, I haven't tested this, maybe even pretty close to weight as well. But when it comes to taste, they are not the same. So you can be equal in one sense and distinct in another. 
And when it talks about man and woman being equal in the New Testament, it's saying in equal in worth, equal in access to Christ, equal in access to the Father, equal in dignity and equal in, let's have a look, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, that's mankind, in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man, that is male and female, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him, male and female, he created them. So, they, so man and woman equally bear the image of God, the likeness of God. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Moving into chapter two, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and the host of them. That's all we have time for tonight. If you'd like to obtain a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org and select Qualities of a True Man from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, the fact that a man is head of the household does not give him permission to lord it over his household. Rather, headship pertains to order and responsibility. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.